0: Welcome to the SORCH podcast, where we explore Sikh and wider South Asian history, art and philosophy with historians, artists and researchers. Today, I have the awesome pleasure to introduce Devinder Singh Thur. He's put together one of the finest collections of Sikh art, arms, armour and rare artefacts from all over the world. He's someone who's had a direct and lasting influence on myself. Back in 2011, during my second year of my history undergraduate degree, I had the pleasure to attend the Golden Temple exhibition being held at SOAS. I, like anyone else who had this pleasure, will not forget the guided tour of the exhibition given by yourself and others, in particular the explanation of the armour of the Sikh soldier. Now, why was it so influential? Well, I thought I was a bit of a badass, someone who was going to try and shine light on what I was classing at that point true Sikh history. However, in the hour or so of that guided tour, I had been introduced to someone who was there doing it and wearing the t shirt extremely well. So, I genuinely cannot say thank you enough for obviously joining today, and I have to admit i 'm slightly fangirling right now, so it 's kind of like um, everything all in one podcast for me
1: no, thanks a lot for the uh... the introduction and it's my my pleasure to to be here thanks for the invite
0: no not a problem now as usual i always like to start with getting to know the person that we're talking to just a little bit better it's always interesting hearing stories of where our parents or grandparents happen to have come from and how we've ended up where we are so i just basically love to start with getting to know a little bit about yourself your family background and then how you ended up getting involved in Sikh history and then Sikh artifacts
1: Okay. Okay. Um, Yeah. Well, I suppose starting at the beginning, my parents um, originally from Lidiana that district, and they, my dad arrived in the early sixties. My mum soon after and uh, settled here. I I was born in Watford in nineteen eighty, and soon after I was born, my family moved to Slough um, because my my dad got a job with, with Pan Am. I don't know whether you remember Pan Am airlines. Um, they were, they were around for a little while and they, and they went, so yeah, so, uh, we moved to Slough and I, um, I grew up in Slough, so I don't really have any memories of living in Watford, but, um, um, I'm the youngest of five and, uh, so I've got, uh, three older sisters and one older brother. And, um, yeah, so I grew up in Slough and, um, went to school in Slough and, uh, uh, what to say about it? Slough is a fascinating place. I mean, it's a real um, uh, kind of cultural kind of hot pot, and uh, uh, no fond memories. And um, and then, I suppose, I, I think in our house, you know, we always had an interest in um, in history and, and philosophy. It wasn't a typically uh, religious kind of Sikh household in the in the kind of dogmatic sense. You know, my dad was clean shaven. Um, um, but he was very much into philosophy and, and poetry and things like that. My mum um, uh, was, was I suppose, in many ways, your kind of typical, hardworking, devout uh, Punjabi mum. And um, it's interesting, I, I tell people this and they laugh, and I never ever spoke to my mum in English, and I, I don't think I ever really spoke to my dad in Punjabi. So it's a very it's a very funny house we had so I only ever spoke to my dad in English and uh, only ever spoke to my mum in Punjabi. And, and I got different things from each of them, really. Um, it was a, it was a pretty testing, uh, I would say, um, uh, upbringing in the sense that my, my dad suffered, uh, with alcoholism and, um, and, you know, depression associated with that. So I think for my youth, you know, I, I never remember my dad having a job. Um, and, uh, uh, and my mum had two or three at a time. So, you know, she worked immensely hard. And so we got a hard work kind of ethic from her. And um, I don't know whether you've been around many alcoholics, but one thing that you're guaranteed is honesty from them. And, uh, and it's something that I kind of value kind of looking back on was, you know, what we, what we got from our dad was just a deep kind of brutal kind of honesty as to what life was about. So that was looking back. I'm kind of very grateful for that. Um, and yeah, we, we went to, you know, there wasn't a lot of money in the house. Um, but weirdly enough, we never felt poor, always well fed. I went to India often, um, from a very young age, almost kind of every year, I think. And, you know, what really kind of sticks with me is, is my mum dragging me around to I had two two distinct kind of experiences? I suppose with her whenever we went to India was one was being taken around all the gurdwaras, you know, everywhere, um, you know, whether it was Hazur Sahib or around Punjab or you know even Hemkant and uh, those kind of places. She was just had so much energy and very adventurous personality. And secondly, was being dragged around the suit shops and um, um, you know just watching her bargain haggle you know buy suits for all the relatives and whatever and just sitting there sipping coke kind of watching watching what was going on and just learning very passively uh how i what i look back now on is is how to kind of trade and deal and and bargain you know it didn't really um and um yes i kind of grew up with that and then uh we, we always had it, all of us in our household. It's very strange. I, I look back and I kind of tell my kids this, you know, we, there was never a great interest taken, I suppose, in our education, but you're always kind of expected to do well. My dad came first in Punjab in uh, electrical engineering and had a scholarship which brought him over to England, which was quite rare at the time. And um, so he was very bright naturally. Um, and we were just expected to be smart. But, you know, the way that we lived didn't necessarily make it easy for you to, to do your schoolwork. Um, and but we had this hard work ethic. I had my first job at the age of 12, um, uh, working with some cousins, selling ladies wear clothing in, in markets, Western International and Wembley and those kind of places. And I used to get paid £12 a day and come home and just give it to mum, you know. And it was it was just very much um, kind of embedded in us. And I think later on in life, you know, that kind of bubbles up to the surface and becomes something. Um, yeah,
0: that's pretty incredible. It's just it's always interesting hearing um, people's backgrounds and their family history. Um, I appreciate actually the honesty that that you've answered that with. Um, not a lot of people would necessarily open up about their father the way that you did. So genuinely appreciate that. I also find it interesting how how uh, through your mother that. Being dragged around the has kind of taught you, I guess, in a sense, some element of Sikh history, and then being dragged around the suit shops obviously was preparing you for I guess what was coming on later on in life with like the trading and, and and I guess you must find that quite funny actually looking back and going, Well, actually I might have hated it at that point but it kind of worked out.
1: Yeah, I think I think some of the best learning I think that we have in our lives is indirect, is just from watching, is from observing. Um, there's no substitute really for just getting stuck in, and um, and you know as you grow older you realise that you know these events. You know I don't mind talking about our history and frankly because it's um, it's something that I wouldn't change. You know, so nothing to be embarrassed about. It was, um, and you need these challenges uh, to kind of form your character, and you might not know how that's being done over time you know and then you kind of start to pick at it later on and you realize that these what might have been difficult experiences that you wouldn't necessarily wish on someone were actually the best things that ever happened to you and um so yeah I had a I just I was interested in art um I was a bit of a jack of all really I was I was kind of kind of good at lots of things but not great at anything um so I had an interest in art I had an interest in history um and um and then going around the Gurdwara, you know, you're, I think anybody who's done that, you know, it's very, it's an emotional experience. It's um, India makes you think a lot, lots of downtime, lots of traveling time where you're just looking, gazing out of a window. Lots of reflection, you know, particularly when you're going from the UK and you go there and then you come back and you reflect on everything that you should be grateful for here. All that kind of stuff, usual stuff. Um, and uh, yes, yeah, so I think it prepared me well. So um No, it was it was certainly a good grounding, I think, for what I had kind of ahead of me. Um, Yeah.
0: Did you then end up going into higher education and um, studying history or art history or anything that relates to what you're doing now? Or have you ended up kind of doing something as your job? And this is kind of like your hobby.
1: Um, You know what it is? Well, I, I didn't do it as a I didn't do it at university or anything. I actually went and studied optometry. Um, you know, I was, I was just about to apply for dentistry and I met, I met a singer at the Buddha, actually, who, uh, who said, no, mate, he said, you don't want to do dentistry. He said, this is 1998 I'm talking about. And he said, no, it's, uh, it's saturated. He said, uh, you want to think about becoming an optometrist. So I thought, okay, what's that? And he said, look, he said, it's, it's a little bit easier to get into. It's one year less at university and you get paid more when you come out. I thought, okay, well, that's for me. <laughs> you know, so I, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I applied to do optometry, and um, um, I, I did my A levels. I messed up one of them. I got two A's and a D, first time round, and um, I got a D in biology. And uh, so I had a year off to to kind of reflect and do my A level biology again. And um, and in that year was the year that the um, the Arts of the Sikh Kingdoms was being planned at the VA. and a um, 2 things I did that year. One was, apart from doing biology again, one was I, like, for some reason, I took up golf and started to get addicted to playing golf. And uh, and the second thing was I was a volunteer in that exhibition, and I was around. Just so you know, like I, you know, my um, uh, my cousin is is Baramjit Singh from Kashi House. So yeah, so our mums assistant, sisters. So he's he's eight years older than me. He's the same age as my brother, and uh, but my mum's a couple of years older than his mum, so it gives me rank.
0: Ah, oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so,
1: yes, uh, so, yeah. So, you know, I can't. I can't talk about anything really without talking about what it was like growing up in the in the nineties, because there's a few key events you know that happened that kind of influenced me. So one was I'm I'm around. I'm surrounded by these guys. I'm surrounded. I'm twelve, thirteen years old. Uh, initially, and when we first got getting into stuff, and you know, people like you know. Barmjeet, my brother, Amandeep, Madra. You know, they're in their late teens, early twenties. Um, when I'm, when I'm twelve years old, I remember my brother. How old are you, by the way?
0: I am twenty-nine, so I was born in ninety-one.
1: Okay, okay, so 1992. <sighs> two. Right, my brother goes to um, in those days the the first kind of camps, Sikh camps, Kalsa camp. There was then. That I don't know how long one they've been running for before then, but they were run um, by uh, Dr. Dabinder Singh and uh, Update Singh, you know, and um, and they were like wonderful camps that really, like these that were run by these guys that you know be, people would go to. My brother went to one in 1992, and, and I didn't go; I was too young. And uh, so he's twenty; he's uh, twenty years old, and I'm twelve. Right? He comes back from this camp. He comes back after a week, and he's a different guy. You know, I, he's not the same guy that left a week ago. I have got no idea what's happened to him because he comes back and he's talking about all sorts of things I had no idea about. You know, starts telling me about garm, grod, the and all this kind of stuff, and I do, I've never heard these words before. And uh, and suddenly, you know, he's he's changing. He's reading books about Sikh history and whatever. And I kind of and I, I go the following year to the camp and kind of have a similar experience. And, and I think. That was a time, I think, for a lot of us that we had our first interaction um, with art, artifacts, history on a level that we hadn't seen before. Because I would go to these mini ex- exhibitions that, um, you know, we should call them Dr. D, you know, would, uh, would hold uh, where they would show some of the artifacts that they had found. And it was just mesmerizing. You know, as a as a kid, kind of seeing whether it was a painting or a gun or an arrow or a sword or something, um, and and that gradually over time just slowly built up. And every all of us were naive. All of us had no idea about anything, and we were all just keen to learn and devour anything that came our way. And that culminated then in the V&A pulling off her exhibition in 99, which really set off a lot of collectors, I suppose, not just me. And I was, uh, I had a year out that year and Baramjeet signed me up to this exhibition to be a volunteer. And he just said, you know, Dave, he said, you've got to go down there, mate. He said, you've got to, you've got to, uh, you know, be a volunteer. You've got nothing else to do. You know, you messed up one of your A-levels and uh, go down there and help out. So I went there and I... Had never been to the v before, and um, my job was to greet people in the in the vestibule, vestibule in the in the hall, and uh, in the main entrance, and to tell people these Sikhs that were coming from far and wide and their coaches to tell them, guide them to the exhibition, take a few of them round. But before that, I had a I had a chance to kind of familiarise myself with the objects and the art, and I remember buying the catalogue, and I could only afford to buy the softback and I just sat there in the in the lobby and I just read it all like in a day and it was just transformative you know, it was um, uh, that was the beginning I think that was the beginning, yeah
0: That's quite amazing because when I was researching Just to put the questions together for this podcast, it just kept coming up that 1999 was basically the year the V&A put on this exhibition, and it essentially just blew up the Sikh space. Now, what was it about that exhibition that made it so influential? Because as you've even commented yourself, it was the spark that led to your your collecting, but also there were other collectors, obviously, that had been influenced by that exhibition.
1: I think primarily... I think, on a subconscious level um, when you look at it, the art that you encounter, whether it's art or stories that you might encounter in a in a gurdwara or, or a camp or whatever doesn't doesn't tend to go back very far and if you're you know going through a normal education system, if you're being taught about how to look for primary sources or to kind of question bias or you know just general kind of basic research. When you first go to a museum like that, there's an authenticity. Suddenly, it becomes tangible, uh, and there's this proof, physical proof, attached to uh, your heritage, and um, and it just suddenly becomes real. Not that you didn't think it was real, but suddenly to see something physically changes it. You know, I'm, you know, I'm very much kind of like of the spirit that, you know, we're connected to our senses, you know, we need to hear something. You need to, 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 to say something, but you also need to see something and touch something. Um, and, and that's what that was. I think it was, it just highlighted this deeper sophisticated culture that then raised more questions. Uh, and then at that point there's a shift because you realize that, Everybody, most people that you've spoken to, no fault of their own. They have only seen and heard and read so much. And they've only passed to you what they can pass on to you, what they're capable of doing. And then you kind of transition and go, hang on a second, there's more that we need to dig into here. And 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 once you open that door, you know, there's no looking back because you're overnight, in a second, in fact, your, your view changes, your life changes because... You're now on a different path, looking for something else. So I think I think whether people articulate that in the same way or not, I don't know. But I think a lot of that happens. You know, I'm saying this after years of reflection. You know, I think a lot of that does happen on a subconscious level. That's what attracts us to that stuff. Is, um, is these are the authenticity and the and the uh, the realness of it
0: think in a similar fashion, I remember seeing the body armour of the Sikh soldier at the Golden Temple exhibition and on a personal level, for me, it was hugely influential. Though, But then when you saw the body armour, you went, actually, we're not just we're not just hypothesising now. Here is the reality of how a particular type of Sikh soldier would have gone to war. And. I think seeing it in real life definitely changes and has a far more influential impact than just talking about it. So just another small um, example, we were talking about with Gamal Rup on the Dasamgrant podcast episode, we were talking about uh, the bead that by Money Singhji had put together of Adagrant and Dasamgrant and we were just talking about it and I've never seen it, never come across it. And then it just so happened that the uh, Kamal Preet Singh Pradesi behind Sikhism and Snippets managed to get hold of a copy of it and had and has now shared it on goodmukvachar.com. And now once you see it, you're like, all right, well, I can verify that definitely happened. It's not just like hearsay or whatever. And I think that real life impact that like having that foundation because seeing your own, so to speak, is, is hugely, hugely influential, um, to say the least. So one thing then just leading on from that i i just wanted to get a little bit of an understanding of what goes into the research and the work required to locate to verify and then obviously to acquire these items because i'm assuming there are loads and loads of replicas or dummies or fakes out there um simply because of or, like how valuable or, this market probably is how did you go then from kind of that exhibition to No, or like what was the learning curve so to speak and how did you figure out actually right this is the way to go about it
1: you know I didn't didn't have the luxury of um and I say luxury um uh in a funny way really because I didn't the luxury of being like a a checkbook uh collector you know we we didn't have any money and um you know I started off with 60 pounds of borrowed money and um and now looking back, you know, I wouldn't have had it any other way because uh how to give you the analogy, if you let's say you have someone who's a tea connoisseur or a wine connoisseur, right? And they can taste a tea or a, a wine and tell you how good it is or bad it is, right? You and I, let's just say arguments say like we might not be able to do that for the simple reason that we haven't tasted enough tea and wine in our time, right? And and it's the same for art. You it's all about Your confidence growing. You have to learn to trust your own eye. And the only way that you can do that is by seeing lots of stuff. You've got to see lots of art. And and that was brilliant for me because I was forced to see it because I had to buy the low end and see it and move it on because it was not good or then compare it to something that was better. And that just gradual accumulation over time then starts to tune your vision and your senses, like any other discipline, whatever it might be, you know, I'll see someone play the sarangi, and I wonder, how is he or she doing that? Are they even, they're not even, but they're not thinking about the notes anymore, right? It's an extension of them. And similarly, that's how you'll become in any discipline. And I was seeing lots and lots of things. So when I could go to an antique fair or an auction, uh, whether I had money or not, just to see something and hold it and really kind of almost imprint an image of it on my mind, you know, so I could come back to that later on if I needed to recall it. That's what I would do. Uh, and, and likewise, and i say this to kind of upcoming collectors, you know, before I started collecting um, any works so of I was collecting books. I was collecting auction, old auction catalogs where a painting might be illustrated. You know, let, forget the painting, I just wanted to have the catalogue that showed that painting. And, and you start to accumulate knowledge gradually over time. Um, and I was visiting museums and, you know, making requests to go through archives, um, go through reserve, reserve collections, because you only know, like with anything, you only know when something's good when you've seen something b- bad and vice versa. You, know, you need that benchmark, that comparison. Um, And so it began with me with visiting markets, you know, Portobello Road Market. I'd go to religiously on Saturday mornings. Um, I'd visit the antique shops in and around London. I'd travel up and down the country, um, visiting various auctions, antiques fairs here abroad, slowly, 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 just, um, and, you know, buying what I liked, buying what attracted uh, my eye and um, uh, and then researching it once I had it. Um, so that's that's kind of how it progressed slowly. Um, initially, like most, you know, teenage Sikh boys, I was interested in arms and armor, weapons, anything. Not Sikh stuff specifically. I was interested in anything Indian. And then before you know, know it, I kind of got into Persian because it relates to Indian, and then that takes you to Ottoman. That gets you introduces you to European arms and armor uh, or Russian arms and armor. And you start to gather all this knowledge on various on various kind of um, areas of collecting, which all all of which is useful. Um, and then you know I slowly progress from arms and armor to collecting uh, photographs, postcards, newspapers, paintings from paintings, and then moved on to to jewelry, manuscripts. Slowly, slowly, slowly um, over time and just you mentioned the 2011 exhibition you know that was it's hard to imagine now but that was 10 years ago and you know it was only really at that time that I kind of looked back at it look at what I had and kind of thought hang on a second this is this is worthy of telling a story this is worthy of exhibiting that was the first exhibition prior to that you know you show friends and family and you know you you, you know some people are going to be interested, but you don't know to what extent. And it was like, well, let's do an exhibition. Let's see if I'm sure other people must be interested in this stuff, you know, and and that's what that was. And even that guided tour that you went on, we'd never planned to do guided tours at that exhibition. Never. And one day, you know, we did the captions for the, for the objects and everything. I remember one day I saw this mother and daughter kind of looking at one of these paintings and they read the caption and I was kind of watching their reaction and then they moved on, you know, because people typically look at an object in a museum for a few seconds. Most people won't even read a caption. And they moved on and there was so much more I needed to give them that wasn't even in the caption. So I kind of went up to them and said, look, I said, if you don't mind, I said, can I just tell you a few more things about that picture? And then I started to tell them a few more things about it. And then I couldn't resist and I told them about the next thing. <laughs> and before you know, there they're not, well, actually, can you tell me about the next thing? And before you know, we had about five or six people uh, and I was effectively just doing this guided tour, which wasn't planned. And at that point, we realised, you know, myself and Barhamji, you know, alternating doing these tours, thinking we can't let people go without giving a bit more information. That's just not right. So and that's how those tours began. Um, so it's, um, yeah, I forgot what your question was. Now. Sorry, I've gone off on one there. No, 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 it's not a problem.
0: Um, So so you've answered most of it. The only bit then that I wanted to just dig into a little bit deeper is like, so for argument's sake, you'd said that when you started off, you were collecting newspapers and postcards and photographs and books. One thing that I've personally found a bit of an issue is how do you differentiate? Well, I guess you've answered it by kind of experience helps you, but like, how do you differentiate when something is a fake or a duplicate? Like, how do you ensure that what you're getting is what it is, if that makes sense, like it is authentic?
1: Okay, I mean, yeah, it's a good, it's a really good question, and particularly, it's an important question for now because there's there's never been a time when there's been more fakes than now. Um, and and when you think about why, it's kind of, um, it, it's, it's it's common sense to kind of work it out because it's you get fakes when you have demand but no supply. Does that make sense? So so sea car is scarce. It's rare. Is rare because it wasn't produced over that long a period of time. So on average, an average a civilization or a culture might last four or five hundred years. How long is that for the Sikhs? Really? We're talking about, you know, the best part of about 50, 60 years. It's not very long. So they don't produce very much. Um now there's a demand for it. And there's a demand for it, and then but there's no material. So what do the people do? You know, the unscrupulous people out there will go and get fakes made. And the key thing is provenance is history attached to an object where has it come from where was it before this can we track it can we trace it and that's you know that that makes it harder because for the fakers because i want to know where it's come from who had it before you had it you know and can you prove it to me have you got a a record of this being around in the 1960s 1920s or whatever after some time also you know you'll you'll see that fakers don't want to, they want to fake to make money. So they're going to fake the higher end things generally. So, you know, they're not going to necessarily fake something that's really, really cheap anyway. So that normally is is another guiding guiding kind of factor. Um, And then you just begin to, it's hard for me to explain to you, but you'll just begin to pick this up as you see more things. You also have to question your source. Who is offering you this piece? Where is it coming from? You know, it, it, who is it a reputable dealer? You know, are they, uh, have they got a good reputation? And is what does this object compare to? You know, can I compare it to one in a museum somewhere? Can I go and visit that one in the museum to see what it's like in terms of its quality? So there's various things uh, I think that you've got to kind of ask yourself as you kind of find some of these things. Um, we collect, we start collecting, most collectors will start collecting at the postcards, newspaper. Kind of in because it's easier, it's cheaper. You know, these are all t- authentic things that are uh, accessible, readily available,
0: and it's easy to it's easy to verify as well because you can normally log on to like an archive and look up that newspaper and just check like verify it or whatever. Um, and I guess that's not necessarily as easy with like bigger items either. So no, that definitely makes sense. Thank you for that. That's really useful just on a personal level, let alone um, anyone else listening. <laughs> Just then diving into your collection or or just kind of focusing on that, one thing that also blew me away at that Golden Temple exhibition was when I saw the canon. And I still took like even today, this morning, my wife was like, oh, so who are you talking to today for your podcast? And I was like, because she's not necessarily aware of names. I was like, he owns a canon. That's all I need to tell you. And she was like, what? I was like, he owns two cannons. And she was like, "What are you on about?" And I was like, "Just wait there." And I went and got the, the Empire of the Seek's book and I was like, "Look, there are these two cannons and I saw this one in back in 2011 and it absolutely blew my mind." Obviously, over time, I've always been thinking like like the storage capacity for things like this and everything else. Now, one question that that came up was, are there any items that you have to have like really specific storage conditions for? Are there any like particular item that you have to keep in a I don't know, like a temperature controlled room or there's like a very specific requirement for its storage
1: yeah so I, I i keep everything um i keep everything in a temperature humidity controlled environment um so it's particularly it's very important um particularly with paper textiles it's important you know it's um also away from natural light um so yeah that's how everything is kept as you know a collection grows um and you know the whole the whole reason behind having a collection is that you want to preserve these things uh you know posterity and keep them as well as you can keep them after having conserved them restored them where needed so it's crucial uh, yeah so so you know everything's kept in that way um but we're very kind of um cautious around moisture
0: I, I could well imagine, especially with, with just the collection full stop. Um, you commented about restoration and stuff. So, are there or have there been any items that you've purchased that you've had to restore? And if so, is there anything int- like any particularly interesting restoration jobs you've had to do?
1: Um, I think uh, and I haven't done an awful lot. but general kind of general kind of restoration and um, cleaning of certain artifacts. I tell you two two that are interesting that come to mind. Actually, are. Um, one is that you would you might have remembered a large portrait of Maharaja Sher Singh. It's a mixed-media portrait by Kapoor Singh. It was, in the, it was in the exhibition in 2018. And um, it's in the book, actually. Interestingly, it's actually it's in, it's in the book unrestored because I, I acquired it just before publishing the book. So I felt terrible because I had to put an unrestored image of it in the book because I so badly wanted to share it in the book. But this was a portrait that was done on a large piece of kind of card that someone at some stage had bent and folded in half so that it was um, broken all the way across um, and torn right across its centre horizontally. And, and then I had to then lift it away from the card um, to restore the paintwork, to bring out the real gold, the real silver that was in this painting. So the final painting when it was on display was um, had been restored and it was just completely different. It's a shame, isn't it? It's a shame that, I, you know, I'll, I'll publish it again one day after having taken new photographs of it. Um, one is, is, is that picture. The other one was um, the, um, the Thugs painting by Scherft. Um, so that, that just going through the process of having that cleaned, um, and, you know, a really good store, a restorer of, of, of paintings in oil will be able to tell you like when they as they remove varnishes, when someone had touched his painting up and another bit had been added. And, and I took it to the, this restorer and he starts to clean it and all these details start to Jump out, and the colours start to pop out, and you see little details of like little boats in the horizon, and and there's a there's a statue of Krishna on his flute in the foreground, in the in the um, um, inserted into this tree, and these little details start to emerge that I hadn't even noticed before, and um, yeah, so it's always wonderful having a painting uh, uh, restored uh, because you start to slowly, slowly peel back these layers and kind of go back through time.
0: That is amazing. I would love to have been like a fly on the wall when the uh, r- the the oil painter was was working his magic and just like watching and listening to that because that sounds quite um quite an experience to say the least. Um, just in another question, just just moving on, I guess. Does the majority of Sikh artifacts then come from India, or are there, or is there like a particular country that kind of pops out, and it's a bit of a surprise? Um, in relation to actually finding Sikh, Sikh artifacts.
1: I think most of it, I think, has had, had left India, I think, in the 19th century. Um, I think what we can say is that there's a few kind of distinct ways in which it moved around. Most Sikh art that we see today, we find in, outside of India. Um, and in some weird ways, thankfully, it was removed when it was. In the, when I say thankfully, I mean, the reason why we find it now in good condition is because it left earlier. Um, so a lot of c which remains in India, uh, either in, you know, much of it is is in major kind of institutions or still with royal families, um, like in the Fulkian States or Chandigarh Museum, places like that. Others, other objects and, and artifacts might remain um, with families who are connected uh, to the gurus at the time of the gurus. So, you know, uh, there's various kind of families um, in Punjab and other places that still have artifacts. Otherwise, what we have is C-cart leaving generally kind of post-annexation uh, or after annexation, so let's say 1849 or the early 1850s, when the doshakan of Singh is uh, is is auctioned off. You know, Singh himself was a collector. There would have been gifts prior to that that were being made that then left the country. So we know that there's artefacts that have come here. Not everything, you know, it's quite a, a misconception and a bit of a sort of false narrative to just, it's so easy you should think that everything was stolen uh, and, and looted. And it's, you know, it's, it can get a bit embarrassing, I think, sometimes, because that it wasn't always the case. So if you look at it, you know, many things were gifted to people, you know, prior to the anglo Sikh Wars, you know, reducing was on friendly terms with some Europeans. They were exchanging gifts. And these gifts are going both ways, you know, and uh, the gifts are going to France and so on. And then um, because of his, his, his all the, uh, the foreign mercenaries that are fighting um, uh, for him, and then what you have is in the 1850s, you have a, a series of auctions after, you know, the, the East India companies had this very expensive war against the Sikhs. And the contents of the treasury are broken up and some of them will go into the Royal Collection. Some of them have gone to the the then um, uh, South Kensington Museum, the V&A. Some of them went into private hands like those that went into, you know, Lord Dalhousie kept for himself in, uh, in uh, Colstoon at his estate. And then others were just dispersed in a series of auctions, about 10 sales that take place in 1851, 52. And, you know, just sold off. And it attracted many buyers from all over India, other Maharajas and Nawabs and so on, other collectors who were just buying these things. What's remarkable to think about is we naturally will start to think about all of these objects as old and antiques. But if you, if you think about it many of them would might have been five, ten years old then it's funny isn't it you, you don't often think of, when you think about this art being sold we would naturally obviously imagine it to be old but then it was new these these were new things that people were selling then so you were going to an auction to buy dagger or a sword or a horse's harness that might have been 10 years old but that had a value an intrinsic value because of the gold or the pearls or the gems or whatever the enameling whatever it might be that stuff then goes into the open market. Much of it sold in a very generic fashion so that we can't detect it easily today. You can de leapsing, you know, try to find and track down some of these auction catalogs and you've reprinted a couple of them. Others others are accessible in archives. And you can go through and work stuff out. And some stuff is, you know, belonging to belongs to very kind of noble people and is labeled and named, but other things are you know, a horse's harness set with three hundred rubies, two hundred diamonds and one hundred emeralds. You know, you don't know who that belonged to, but you know roughly what it is. That might have been broken up. Um and, and so on and so forth. Um, so a lot of it is outside. Also, I think, you know, what I'm grateful for is being here living just outside of London. London is actually the centre of the Indian art market. So, you know, biannually you'll have these sales that happen in London where all collectors of Indian Islamic art will come to to buy all you know wonderful art like that surfaces here because it's the best marketplace. So it attracts art from collectors outside of India, and that's that's normally how it kind of tends to circulate.
0: That's really interesting because one of the questions that someone had sent in was actually in reference to the catalogue of Mardar Jind Singhji's treasury, obviously, and and the auctions that took place. And what they were asking was if some of those items came up today or were found today how how would you necessarily be able to verify that would that again be through provenance and and just checking who owned it prior etc
1: that, that's the main way the main way is through is through provenance checking and that sadly the provenance doesn't always that history doesn't always survive with an object um that's what you hope for uh, you hope to to have provenance with something um other than that what you're looking for is inscriptions And, you know, you hope that, you know, something is inscribed and that reveals who the maker was or who the owner was. Other than that, if you, and this is difficult to do, but if you can can find an old catalogue entry for something and it describes that object, but it describes it in a way which is detailed enough for you to kind of draw a comparison, then you can hint at something. Well, this suggests that this might be that object, but you're not always going to know. Also, what makes it tricky from a SEEK perspective is let's say we're trying to track down objects from Ranjit Singh's Doshakana, is he himself was buying things that were made in all parts of India. So these aren't all Lahore-specific. You know, he is buying, you know, bracelets from Benares, enamel from from Lucknow, or, you know, he's certain gems that are coming from the Deccan or emeralds that are coming from Colombia. You know, like there's places, these artifacts are coming from all sorts of places. So you can't always look at how something's made, where something was made to find out where it's where it ends up, if you know what I mean
0: um, I was just gonna then just ask off the back of that uh, with the catalogue of Ranjit Singh Ji's Tosh are there any items related to the gurus and what happened to them?
1: We know that I mean, Ranjit Singh didn't just have items related to the gurus but he also had other objects, items uh, related to uh, her, the Prophet, Prophet Muhammad and um you know he was there was a rivalry at that time in terms of collecting between himself and also the the uh, riders from the Fulking estates. states and um in terms of those items connected to the gurus we know i mean you can look through the lists and you'll know specifically you know there's references to the galgi of guru gobind singh or the swords of guru gobind singh yeah i mean sadly they haven't surfaced um there've been there's been some research to suggest that um you know the 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 artifacts that went back to uh you know the swords that went back to uh Lord Dalhousie's estate, you know, have gone missing. They have never surfaced. Embarrassingly, you know, even in 1966 when uh, uh, there's pressure being put on British government to return the weapons of Guru Gobind Singh, which Lord Dalhousie's kept for himself. You know, uh, we know, you know, you'll probably find this in your research. You'll find images of shields and swords and stuff that went back to Anandpur uh, and then were paraded all around India and then whatever uh, to commemorate the 300th birth anniversary, Guru Gobind Singh. You know, we know that those some of those items could not have been his uh, because they were made 150 years, 200 years after his, you know, 100 years after his, his death or whatever, you know, so, and, and you know, those in India or whoever the committee members were that came over, they didn't know what they're looking at and nor did they know how to kind of identify something, but they're happy to take it back. And and then now it's, you know, it's, it's Grigorban things. Yeah. So sadly those artifacts are missing. The gulgi is missing. There was, there's references that we find describing it. And I think the last that anybody had had kind of heard of it or seen of it, seen it was uh, in the early nineties. And, um, since then, it's it's uh, it's gone. So, you know these. I'm sure, and I would, you know, I, I think it's inevitable that things will surface. You know, there's uh, we're in this very, what I would term this kind of renaissance phase of. I hate to use the term C-cart in many ways, but but we're in this renaissance phase. You know, and that's why you and I are having this discussion and you've had these great discussions and podcasts with all these other people who are very passionate in their fields or somehow connected to kind of like some form of art or traditional art forms. And, um, and this is what will bring this stuff to light. All of these works of art, something will surface at some point. Also there's, you know, people are attracted by money. So, you know, all of these discussions, whether they're a seek art in an auction or a collector like me this gets people talking. It doesn't take much. You know, it's very hard to get people talking. You start talking about money and you start you start adding value somehow, you know, your ears prick up and you want to listen to what's going on. So that's a sad truth of it. So I think it's a good thing because it means that, you know, if, if what we're interested in is finding those objects, then it's the best time for it. Yeah.
0: One thing, though, that I wanted to ask you, obviously, because of your breadth of, of knowledge and within this field is, have you come across any or have you heard of any contemporary portraits of the gurus being commissioned?
1: So um, firstly, not in the, in the private art market sphere. So I, have, I haven't seen one for sale, uh, nor do I have one. The thing to understand here is that um, the nature of portraiture, Okay, so the nature of, and, and that type of portrait is very much connected to the, to a royal court. It very much was a courtly kind of art. It wasn't, people weren't producing these works of art just for the sake of it. These were highly costly endeavours. So so just by that logic, what you then start to realise is that the earliest portraits that we're likely to find or have found are then going to be connected to the first court, which then gets associated with Guru Hargobind. So to find early portraits or contemporary portraits prior to that is, I would say, I would imagine would be uh, near impossible um, because the Sikhs haven't established themselves in that way at that point. In Guru Arjan's time, what you see is not necessarily an emulation of the of the Mughal court, but you see a challenge to it and... Is like well here you go we we, we also start to do the sim- similar things we sort of, so that's when you find early contemporary portraits and as far as i'm aware there are contemporary portraits of guru hargobind uh, and they exist both in india and, and in the western world so there's a there's portraits that you will have seen that have been published in um the byrupa collection in uh, in punjab uh, but equally uh there's a is a contemporary portrait of guru hargobind in in the US, in Seattle Asian Art Museum. And um, uh, and those are the earliest portraits that I know that I would comfortably say were contemporary uh, uh, to the gurus. We then see later on, we know that there's contemporary portraits of Guru Gobind Singh, which exists in, well, the earliest portraits actually kind of exist within family collections that were connected to the times, to the gurus at their time. So that's that's what we see. Um, in museum collections it's harder to find a contemporary portrait the one that got to Seattle likely got there with uh, with somebody not knowing that it was Guru Hargobind in fact I think they actually they actually had it miscatalogued uh, um, in their collection up until not long ago is
0: this the one where Maharaj is wearing orange and he's standing facing to the left?
1: I think so I think it's related to the one, the two in Bahruwa. I think that is related to one where he's seated, cross-legged. Um, another one where he's standing. There's a few, but he's very distinct. Right? Like, like he is, you know. And that in itself lends to the authenticity. You know, if you're going to think about being at that at the level that he was in that royal court, and the artist that you might be commissioning that, who also might be working for good patrons within the Mughal court, uh, you know, you're not going to get a bad portrait done. You know, it's going to be a decent likeness of you and um and there's also individual elements that, that make you realise this isn't just a generic template of a Mughal ruler or an Indian ruler. Do you know what I mean? So so and you can fight and then and then this is great because it it sings to all the things that we know uh, uh, about Guru Hargum in popular history. We we talk about him being big and strong, broad shouldered and you know, you look at him and you get a sense of the kind of his immense kind of stature and scale. It comes across, um, so yeah. So that's so they, so they exist. That's they, I mean they're very exciting to see. Um, and then in particular, you know, you'll see these um, these paintings of Guru Gobind Singh, which uh, show him in his younger years, you know, in India. Um, oh, I think all of these have been published, but sadly, in the in the private um, uh, sphere, uh, no. I think the earliest portrait I think that I have uh, of any of the gurus dates to about 1785 to 1790. Um, so, still sort of pre Rinjit Singh and uh, missile period, and you know, still remarkable because it's only about 70, 80 years after you know, Guru Gobind Singh's death. Um, yeah. So it'll be a dream to find a contemporary
0: portrait. Oh, I can well imagine. Just two questions of, of what you've uh, what you've shared with us. Um, First one is, so you mentioned that the earliest piece of art that you've got is from the Missal period. Now, can you just tell me a little bit more about art during the Sikh Missal period? Because from the very limited knowledge that I've got, the majority of Sikh art obviously comes from the Sikh empire onward because they've established themselves and, and, and all the rest. And the Sikh missile period is normally seen as a a time of just huge upheaval and and it seems almost impossible for there to have been art coming from that time period obviously you've got the proof that there is art from that time period so could you just just fill me in a little bit about that time period how then that art piece came to be and kind of just connecting that all together
1: yeah sure so um yeah, so we know that, uh, you know, what, what we're associating the production of art with, we're going to associate it with um, sovereignty and and wealth and patronage. Um, and, you know, luckily for us, those early dars as they accumulate wealth, uh, and, you know, they, they're obviously, you know, there's lots going on at once. It's not just uh, fighting day in, day out. You know, this is, we're talking about a span of... Uh, the best part of about seventy years before Ranjit Singh's born, you know that this, this is, um, that this landscape is evolving and changing. And you have a lot of these um, missiles who are now capturing, taking lands, um, where previously artists have been uh, patronized. and luckily for us, the Sikhs continue to provide that patronage. Um, maybe because they're interested, partly because this is the culture of the time. And also partly because they're emulating those that, whose boots they're filling and who who were ruling before them. That tra- that art generally translates into miniature paintings, or what we know to be the early uh, the earliest forms of Sikh art is through the Janamsaki tradition. So, and then somebody maybe aligning themselves with that tradition. So, if if it if it was you know common practice for my household to commissioner Janamsaki, then I'm going to get one done. And in reverence of, of Guru Nanak and, uh, and then somehow I might, might attach my family name to it, whether it's, you know, one little quote that suggests who, who the patron is or to maybe, maybe even go as far as seating me next to one of the gurus in one of the painting, which, which happens. So, yeah, so, so th- this is it. They, they do some photobombing, you know, in, in the middle period. And, um, um, so I have a, a dated Janamsaki to a, a Saki date 1762, an illustrated Janamsaki. And, you know, this coincides with, you know, the, the around about the time of the Mardakallugara and you think, what's this getting, how can this be produced then? You know, but it was, um, you know, there's, like I mentioned, there's other paintings that I have of the guru sort of circa 1785, 90. Um, I have a painting recently acquired actually of, uh, Jassa Singh uh, with his son Gobak Singh um, um from 1780 um you know in, in conversation with some with the uh, from Kangra and you know Guru Singh is Ranjit Singh's future father-in-law you know he's he's the whole reason why Ranjit Singh gets married into that family you know his his death is culminates in uh, the the alliance between these two households and um, so you've got these traditions um, that, for me, th- those are the most interesting paintings. You know, we've got Seacart we've got produced from 1850 onwards, but by that time we're largely, you know, there's a tourist market now, it's changed. The early kingdoms, the early times, the 1700s, when we know that they're fighting for survival and it's early expansion, we get to really understand, you know, who these people are how they are wanting themselves to be represented, how they're happy for themselves to be represented. You know, they're leaving us a a document essentially that tells us who they are, who they were and what they were doing. So that's how that that evolves. But it's very much related to a courtly tradition. Um, You know, there's not an awful lot of information about folk art from that period. We see it a little bit later on in the Sikh sense. So it's not just art being produced for art's sake. It has a value to it and it's um you know these are these are paintings that are not viewed how we would view paintings you know they're bound they travel with you you know you hand them to each other you sit around together and look at something photography hasn't arrived yet it's a very different experience
0: i absolutely love these conversations because i get to learn so much and i could literally just sit here and and just let you carry on because i could listen to this all day and i think i think the most important bit or the the bit that i really value is 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 hearing For argument's sake, that there's art from a time almost parallel with the Vadu Kalukara changes, then how you or changes the popular historical narrative that a lot of us may hold, um, or or kind of a very kind of one dimensional view of history. And and the example that I often use is um, I was reading. Rajasthani Vakil report on Banda Singh Bahadur and all of a sudden they start talking about this person called Ajit Singh and they're like, yeah, there's this random dude, he's turned up, he's calling himself the Guru, he's called Ajit Singh, he's saying he's the son of Guru Gobind Singh Ji and it turns out that Guru Gobind Singh Ji's wife, once she'd moved to Delhi or once she went back to Delhi with uh, by adopted a child and named him Ajit Singh. And the only reason that I find that so interesting is because if that was part of your kind of historical popular narrative, perhaps... Attitudes towards adoption within the Punjabi Sikh community would be very different. It's just a really random, random anecdote, but I think it, it it kind of signifies the importance of having a unsanitized historical narrative and actually just seeing it for for what it is, being frank about it. One question that I would love to hear your input in um is that so in the podcast I had with Satnam and Simran, we were essentially debating what. Sikh art even means and we came across some kind of like dictionary definitions by uh, some Sikh art collectors. I think I'd taken the definition out of the Susan Strong book and I personally find the definition a little bit interesting because essentially what we came down to was either the individual in the painting or the individual creating the, the piece of art is a Sikh. Now, even that term itself can mean all sorts of different things at different points in time. And I have my own personal view on that. But uh, how would you go about defining Sikh art? And you obviously commented earlier that you find it a little bit interesting to, to use that term as well. So I'd love to, to get your input on that.
1: Yeah, no, I think it's an interesting question with regards to um, how we identify and label things. I think in many ways, we have to appreciate that for some reason, we're obsessed with definitions defining or demarcating. And it's important, I think, to understand where that comes from, I think, before we start actually labeling what CCAR is. And I would say that for some reason, we're conditioned to, from a place of insecurity, um, to have to label it and belong to something and separate ourselves from something there's something there I, I, I partly I haven't got to the bottom of it fully but I think partly is due to the fact of being separated from a lived culture uh, lived tradition that was once in place pre-annexation of Punjab and over years and over you know various revisions and re redefining and and uh, attempts to kind of distill what we once were we end up actually in this really messed up situation where we've got no idea and we're just literally kind of blind people looking around in the dark and and I um and I think the the other this is why art is so important because actually um when you look at what we term seek art you can think about you can think about is the artist is a seek and most seek art is not produce, what we term seek art anyway is not produced by Sikh artists. Sikh artists don't really turn up until the beginning of the 19th century, really, and actually probably later. Um, is a subject Sikh? Well, what are you going to do when the subject's not a Sikh, uh, but they but they identified as Sikh? Right. So if I'm going to now sit in a position where I want to define someone from then, but when they didn't necessarily define themselves, and that seems a bit strange... How's that? How's that even possible if they didn't define themselves? Um, and and then also you have um, you know you might not have a Sikh subject, you might not have uh, a Sikh artist, but you might have a Sikh patron. Now, what do we do? What do we do if a Sikh patron? So, from, from my sense, just to literally kind of make sense of it, so I can, I've had to label this kind of Sikh art just to kind of get, to, get us talking about it. I will collect anything that's and related to. A narrative that I think needs discussing. So, if something that's related to the Sikh story, then it will come into this, and we we can discuss it and we can talk about it. Um, so, I think that's that's kind of you know you you can look at it in, in various ways. Um, but I mean, I, let me think about. I, I, I'll just give you a little story. My, my, I mentioned to you, you know, my my an interesting relationship with my dad. Now, he was. He was, um, like I said, he's clean-shaven, very much into philosophy and stuff. There I am. I've never had my hair cut. So he's got a boy who's got a little Jura growing up. And, you know, people used to look at us funny. And, and my dad, he said to me once, I never, ever, ever understood this. For, for, I never understood for a long while. But he said to me once, he said, um, he said look, he said, um, I'm, I'm a sick of Guru Nanak. He said, I can't be a Karl Guru Gobind Singh. He said, that's not in me. He said, I'm not, he said, I can't be a Khalsa Guru Gorman But he said, but I feel like a Sikh of Guru Nanak. And, and I kind of struggled with that for a while because I thought you couldn't, you couldn't be one without being the other or, or it had to be his ultimate goal to become a Khalsa Guru Gorman Otherwise he was failing, you know, or just couldn't come to terms with it, particularly as he didn't look like. But that's how he felt. That's how he defined himself. And that's what we learn when we look at Sikh art or any kind of art that looks back is we realize that this umbrella, this notion, this label of seat is vague, is odd. It didn't exist, yet we're trying to make it exist, and so you're never going to get there. And, and you've got this all-inclusive, very fluid uh, spectrum that becomes apparent and is overwhelming uh, and and you start to see it and you'll start to pick, you know, you'll see these paintings of a Sutra Shahi or a Nanak Bantani or a Nagali or a Nanak Shahi Fakir or whatever it is. You know, you get to see these interesting and wonderful people who are happy to coexist and were were thinking beyond the labels. Surely that was the 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 kind of the purpose to one degree. Obviously, there's a physical need to, uh, in Guru Gobind Singh's time, to very much kind of um define things with that but but yeah so i think uh, sorry it's a very long-winded vague answer but i i wouldn't like to put any kind of definition on it if that if that's allowed
0: no, no no i don't i don't disagree with you at all i actually purposely put the question to you because I, I i half expected the response i have to admit i'm not that far off your conclusion and i guess that kind of makes sense because a lot of the books that i've read um have either come from kashi house etc and i think even just putting that aside, the historical facts talk for themselves. Like, as you said, the images, um, census records, you name it. I always refer to hard to book uh, construction of religious boundaries. I think that's a wonderful explanation of literally describing what, what you've been talking about. And I guess we have kind of been forced into this labelling convention um, ever since the Singh are just because we have to be unique and different. And I think one thing that I find interesting... Um, the last podcast I recorded was with Gamalpreet Singh Pardesi from Sikhism and Snippets. And he was, I asked him the same question. Um, and and he gave pretty much a, an identical answer. And what he was pointing his finger at, in, instead of art in this instance, it was, it was Qatar. And it was how, for argument's sake, there are like, I don't know how many different explanations of just card, but they're based on a Vedantic understanding. And ever since Singh Sabah, because they've because Singh Sabha viewed Vedanta as being Hindu, was kind of slowly whittled like whittled away, in, and only very few schools kind of kept that going. And yeah, and to be honest, you've just said the same thing, but from this perspective of the art and, and the artefacts. So yeah, I, I think you are allowed to not give a definition, because you'd almost be self-defeating if you were to give that explanation, and then also provide a definition.
1: Sorry, no, I was going to say, I just add to that. You know, I think um, in terms of kind of general principles... We all we all know that from a fund and I'm very much just about fundamentals. Like I don't I I don't have the time to kind of get into uh the kind of nitty-gritty uh uh you know and the and the debates attached to kind of really getting deep into stuff when I'm very much a 20, you know, the 28 year old. I'm very much that kind of a person. I'm a last minute reviser when it comes to exams. I want to put in 20% effort and get 80% results quickly. I haven't got time to waste. And I remember someone once saying to me when I was about 13, 14 years old, actually, actually, it's one of those camps, actually. Someone said, uh, look, he said, um, if you want, he said, everything is in Ikkunkar. You ain't got time, right? Everything is in Ikkunkar. And after that, he said, the Mool Mantra expands Ikkunkar. If you want to understand the Mool Mantra a bit more, then go to Japji Sahib. If you want to understand Japji Sahib, you know, know, the rest of the grant elaborates upon that, Right. So, And I remember thinking at that point, my mind naturally, and I don't know whether it's because I've got an entrepreneurial mindset or whatever, was very quickly, I was like, okay, I just need to concentrate on that equine car a bit, right? Because I don't have time to kind of necessarily, and if you're telling me that I can get the essence anyway from that, then what do I need to understand from this on a really fundamental level? And on that fundamental level, it's about oneness. And what's oneness? What does that mean? You know, and... uh, uh. and what what that must mean is it's, it's got to include we're the same you and me, we're connected, right? So it's about inclusivity, obviously. But anywhere, therefore, wherever I come across any kind of you know divisiveness, uh, my mind just switches off. I, I don't need to know anymore. It's not for me. You know, th- and that's my general kind of principle. And 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 that's been enhanced through this search, through art is it's increasingly kind of obvious, the kind of the cosmopolitan nature of what that landscape was. Uh, And it's reflected everywhere. Um, You can't get away from it. And generally what I find is that the people who do want to get away from it actually don't really like looking at art very much. It's not for them. It's a bit disturbing because it challenges uh, where they might be sitting or, or this house that they've built for themselves that's so secure now that they just can't handle breaking down and rebuilding again, you know? And, um, so yeah, so I think it's, you can make it complicated or you can make it simple. Um, I suppose ultimately you get back to the same place, I'd hope. Uh, and you, but you can understand you've, you know, you've obviously gone to the lengths to kind of deconstruct and go back and work out how this comes comes to be. And we can, we can understand how it comes to be. And it's, um, no, I think, I think, you know, if we all, if we all did a DNA test, we all find out that we're mixed race, and 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 we all are you know what does it mean to be pure anything is just completely of rubbish, And then the moment you do that, then actually you you start to um appreciate this interconnectivity a bit more, um which is uh, which I think has got to be the purpose, and it's also got to be the goal behind sharing whatever like art like this or podcasts like this. You know it was certainly the the, the sun Sikh message, even the Sikh secular court was running that way. So you can't get away from the fact that it's um, uh, very wide uh, and and varied and somewhat uh, syncretic
0: yeah no, definitely. I just wanted to then ask you, is there we were talking earlier about historical narratives and how these artifacts and paintings are really good at breaking kind of popular tradition uh, popular traditional views of history or any kind of misconceptions has it been anything that you've come across and you've been like that is mind-blowing in terms of its challenged some type of preconceived idea you had or almost indicated something that you just thought couldn't have happened almost
1: yeah um well i think i think partly i think my mind was already open you know, lived a relatively kind of cultured life, and I suppose it was kind of, you know, whether it was travelling or, you know, through family or whatever, um, it wasn't really a blinkered kind of existence. So I, I was really open. So I wasn't really going to be challenged by a lot, I don't think. Um, but saying that, you know, you you come across things in time, that just make you question things gently, whether it was a Dasambani uh, gutka that's in the book where each page is... Beautified with different geometric designs and flowers, and you kind of think, hang on, what's this, what's this about? It's a, it's a martial text, you know, probably being read by a warrior, yet the pages are delicately um, embellished. What's going on? Who's the person that's reading this? You know, who is, uh, what's going on here? Then you start to kind of reflect upon that. So that kind of challenges you. Uh, you, because you start to suddenly realize that there's a lot of thought given to a lot of these objects, a lot of mint and kind of effort that you don't necessarily see today. I mean, I'm not, not just saying in the Sikh world, we don't see it in lots of things, you know, everyday. Furniture today is not as good as it was, let's say, in the early 19th century or whatever, do you know what I mean? So, you, but you, what you see in that, and this is why everything, everything is an art, everything is art, right? But some art's crap, right? So... Um, and is is and it's not is not all subjective whether you like it or not, because it's a reflection of what someone's given of themselves to something. So what you actually see in all of these things is people. Right? So you're seeing the people behind the art. And then that you're finding out whether that person is interesting to you or not. Because when a person's interesting you, then you can understand yourself a bit better. And so when you look at these things, like I remember I think mean, one of the paintings that I have that probably caused a lot of tr- controversy. We probably shouldn't talk about it too much, really. Anyway, because but it's a but it's a painting from around certain seventeen seventy five, and it shows, you know, a group of Sikh misldars, and there's a scene with with them kind of in the grounds of a fort at night, and there's uh, some entertainment happening with some some dancing girls. Now that painting, that that startled me when I first saw it because you got to deconstruct that because the first thing you got to think is this is fake, and then. And you realise, actually, this is not fake painting. It's, it's actually a bloody early painting. It's pre Singh, it's before he's born, this painting's made. And the style of the painting, then you start looking at that and go, where's it from? And you saying, okay, well, it's from Lucknow. You think, but hang on, what are these things doing? You know, if I've grown up, you know, like most of us, uh, with an archetypal kind of view of what a singer or a seeker or a man is, suddenly the challenges that. And you suddenly actually start to feel very naive and stupid quite quickly. Because you think, well, why am I even being, you know, agitated by this? What's happening here? And you start to deconstruct it. That painting was in, is it was incorrectly sold as being Guru Gobind Singh and his sons. And actually on the back of it, it says, Gobind Singh Singh. It says the Singhs of Guru Gobind Singh. And then we know from the school of painting that it's from Lucknow. It's not from Punjab. And at that time, the Sikhs are being observed. The early uh, mercenaries, people like Polier, who were travelling and working for the Nawab in Lucknow. And they're Watching the Sikhs, the early accounts that we have of the Sikhs by non-Sikhs are from that period, from that place. Right, so the Sikhs are being observed. Ranjit Singh is not yet born, and these are the early Sikh rulers. These are the early Sikh rulers, and I can't say to you, I can't tell you what's going on in that picture. I, I don't know. To some, to some degree, that picture is going to have some generic elements in it too. I can't tell you whether they're being entertained. I can't tell you whether they're singing Girtan, whether they're not singing Girtan, if they're dancing, if they're not dancing. But what I can tell you is all of that must have happened. Why would I believe it didn't? You know, what? What? how foolish of me, how um, naive immature of me to believe that all of these types of men didn't exist. And some of them would have been depicted. So then you, when you realize that, you, all you really think is that okay, something is challenging you, but everything's the same. Nothing changes. People are the same. You know, it wasn't like there was this godly time when people were just having dal roti seeing kitten every day.
0: But I think that's the important bit that that I really appreciate about these podcasts and talking to people like yourselves is there is a frank and real view of the past. So it's not about trying to sanitize it or clean it or make it. Fit a particular stereotype it's kind of like well here is what i've found like what do you think of it
1: you know my responsibility let's say if i'm gonna i could collect privately and never share anything with anybody right or i could do what i do which is collect try and research with the help of others and share so that we can have discussions there's no agenda to push right there's just something Look, i found this this is what it is it was going to go undiscovered or whatever we've got to talk about this now and and everything that we talk about you know it it you know the spiritual world should reflect itself in the in the temporal physical world you know we should see that day to day Uh, and that's what we see and suddenly we just see you know i think you came up and i listened to a couple of your other podcasts where we've got to humanize we've got to um normalize some of these ideas and so that And and then we'll start to feel more comfortable in ourselves. Then we won't have so many insecurities and you uh, can start to take down some of your fortifications and then people can relax a little bit, you know.
0: And we can have conversations. One thing that I really appreciate with these podcasts is is that it provides so much more nuance and information. So for argument's sake, knowing as Singh Ramgadiya was employed by what was at the time uh, the vizier, the, the Mughal vizier, that changes then the conversation when you're talking about, all right, can Sikhs or should Sikhs be part of the armed forces today? Well, hold on. just Singh Ramgadiya, one of the most celebrated misldars in all of history, technically fought for the Mughal army. On top of that, Guru Gobind Singh Ji had Sikhs in uh, Bahadur Shah's army before Maharaj passed away. There's a hukum nama where he's asking them to send him a uh, gold coin. So yeah, I, I think I think having this nuance and and really actually appreciating history and the facts of what they are to help them have more healthier conversations. And as you were saying, remove those fortifications and actually just communicate with
1: one another. I think the time has come really that I think we've got to keep. I think I think we've got to generally we've just got to move on. Like we've got to we've got to not entertain uh, too much topics that we think are have been dealt with, and uh, and we just got to move on. Um, and some people, thankfully, just won't come with you on that journey, and they just need to be left where they are because we we we've got other things to do. And you know the the simple facts that within a few decades of Guru Gobind Singh's Death Sikhs are killing Sikhs. These missiles are fighting each other. It doesn't take long. It doesn't take long for that to happen. You know, it's not. It's not all just one band of happy-go-lucky. You know, things didn't keep them in the forest. Like this is. This is real life, and this is just how. It, and it wasn't like it went bad two hundred years after. It went bad straight away, and during the times of the Gurus, obviously. obviously. So, so this is this has existed from 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 the first day um now i think our challenge simply is to so that we don't suffer the same fate as other communities such as i don't know the first nations in in the north america or the aborigines in australia where we become so separated from our heritage that we are truly lost uh and kind of stuck in the void i think Luckily, we we're in a position where we've been able to salvage it. We've been able to establish ourselves in the diaspora, and um, and now rescue it and share it on the same platform that other cultures are sharing their heritage. and And the beauty, I think, of our shared heritage is the fact that it's all inclusive. So it's 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 you know it's uh, destined for success because it's got wide reach. And on top of that, it's beautiful and pretty and all the rest of it. So it's good.
0: Just a quick one. So I've noticed that there are a hell of a lot of more questions left. Um, What I was going to suggest is perhaps break this into, and then the rest of it, because it's basically all related to items in the collection. I I reckon it'd be better off doing that separately.
1: Yeah, no worries. Sounds good.
0: Yeah? Yeah. So, okay. So the last two questions then, um, These are just because I think they're probably the most important and and for me, the most interesting. So the first one is when I was flicking through the Empire book, I think I came across what you were talking about earlier, which was the Dusselmgrunt manuscript. Only reason I'm bringing this up is because there's always, well, for me, there's no debate, but for other people, there's sometimes a debate about. Dusum Grunt and its authenticity and all the rest of it. We've done a podcast with Gomel Roop and if you want to find out more, you can go listen to that. But just in relation to artifact collecting, what is the earliest Dossam Grunt manuscript that you have personally come across? And then is there any other artifacts or paintings or anything in particular that refer to Dossam Grunt that you could share with us?
1: So I heard that podcast. I thought it was very good and highly informative. And I... I'm not a scholar in terms of manuscripts. I do have. I've recently acquired a uh, a, a, a Dussumgreth uh, manuscript, a complete one, which which I need to actually use. one of the next things is to be start researching. But I actually have a I have a uh, manuscript. I also have the Granth kutka that you've seen in the in the book. That's not dated, sadly. So I I can't actually tell you what the earliest one that I've come across is. I, I to be honest with you, I haven't delved into it too much. Um, So I'm sorry about that. And uh, I mean, I've got quite quite a decent kind of large collection of of manuscripts that are requiring research. And, you know, there's over two and a half thousand objects in the collection in total. Only a hundred or so are in the book. So there's a mammoth cataloguing task that's been ongoing for a while. Um, So I've just got to get to that. Yeah. So it it takes, uh, it's taking some time.
0: It sounds like my playground. That just sounds amazing. Like that is, yeah, that's incredible. I'm just sat here in awe just listening to that. So there's often a debate about whether or not um, the depictions of Sikhs, quote unquote, with earrings are accurate. I again have my own personal view of that, and I think historically there is there is no denying that Sikhs were wearing earrings and the significance and all the rest of it behind that. Coming from someone who has far more uh, knowledge um, and ha- obviously has seen so much more, what can what would you say to people who would ask that question?
1: Oh God! To be honest with you, I wouldn't even bother answering it. To be honest with you, I mean, I, no, I mean, I yeah, I I don't know. I, I think it's I think. I think that was a question that yeah, maybe I would entertain maybe 15 years ago and, and get into a debate with someone. I'd like to think that we're beyond that now. I mean, the simple fact that what do we have today, simply? Do we have people who are wearing earrings today? Do some people wear them? Do some people not wear them? Yeah, that's the same thing. So back then, some people wore them, some people didn't. I can show you people with earrings and I can show you people without. And there's all sorts of people. It's a spectrum. I think this this idea that we have to think in absolutes and blacks and whites and forget the complete colour of the spectrum between every single shade. You know, this is, as it is now, is as it was then. And um, um, it's just, I don't know, it just is what it is. Clearly people wore earrings and were happy to do so. Otherwise there wouldn't be so many paintings showing people wearing them.
0: Got no qualms with that. I think that's a fair response. So one of the questions that kept coming up when I I put the... um, when I announced that we were having this podcast and, and getting people to send in their questions was, what are your opinions on Sikh artifacts belonging to private collectors rather than Sikh institutions or goodwaters? Personally, I think some of these items obviously, as we've already discussed, require storage conditions, expertise, restoration, all the rest of it. I equally think it'd be great if a goodwaterser took all the millions and millions of pounds that they sat on and actually, I don't know, funded a few people to go to university to do or go and specialize in particular areas and then, do it properly. Equally, I think it depends how we look at this. Various exhibitions, the books, everything else, there there is tangible access to these items. Um, I think a lot of people make out as though, I know some private collectors do, do this, but it's almost like there's this black and white image of almost private collectors just keep everything and and they never share it and it's going to be a loss for everyone else. But even as we've been discussing, you've you've commented yourself that actually the the reason for your collection is in order to share it. However, coming from someone like yourself in the position you're in and obviously with with the background that you've got in this field.
1: I can understand how it's a natural question as well. Not all private collectors are the same. uh, And I imagine that not not all gudwaras are the same. Ultimately... Our interests collectively, I think, should be in initially, say, you know, acquiring these artefacts so that we can research them, preserve them, uh, and that preservation obviously has to be attached to sharing them. So whoever is doing that, for me, it makes no difference. So whether that's a private individual or whether it's a gurdwara, it, it doesn't make it a difference. What I would say, however, is that in my view... I think there's a, a danger with attaching some of these types of artifacts uh, to a relig- religious institution, given that this line between what is religious or cultural heritage, particularly for Sikhs, we're not very good at separating the two, whether it's Sikh or Punjabi or religious or not, um, to give that responsibility to somebody in a non-secular space, uh, potentially, I think, is a mistake uh i think what we need to do is have this accessible to every single person i'm not talking i'm not just talking about Sikhs here everybody has to be given access um you know unfettered access because that's the way we learn more about this stuff you know i don't know everything about it and i need someone else to tell me certain things and so we can put that knowledge together in, in in one space so i think i think to have a secular environment where um people who are of uh, Sikh faith of no faith you know of another faith come and get involved and, and, and have a look at it That's, that has to be the goal also I think what's you know we, there's a lot of discussions I think that we have in our community around heritage heritage- based issues that people people like to people like to talk about these issues a lot they don't like to act to act very much on these issues you know we like to scream and shout a lot and you uh, um, and, but we don't like to actually do anything about it, which is part of the reason why I started collecting in the first place. In one sense, if you think about it, I've just, you know, you've seen the kind of some of the, you've been to the exhibitions, you've seen the book. In some ways, I shouldn't have been able to have done this. It shouldn't, it shouldn't have been possible for someone like me to have built this collection. Do you know what I mean? I like, the, 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 how, how would that even happen? You know, and, and I know how I know how it happened because I knew nobody else was doing it to that level. And and I wasn't it wasn't in my mindset to go and shout and scream and say, Give back our heritage because you've stolen it from us, or can you know, can the gurdwara go and buy it? I just went and bought it because no one else was gonna do it. I had an immediate decision to make. Now, the Gudwaras now, they haven't had their hands tied. No one stopped them from going out there and collecting and looking and researching and employing someone to do that or building a museum, who's stopping them doing that? Nobody's stopping them doing that. I haven't stopped them doing that. So go out there and, do it. you know, competition in the market space is healthy. It's healthy for all of us. So go out there and do it. You know, um, so the fact that it hasn't been done suggests to me that is not that much of an issue actually, but what you have to have is you have to be seen to have an issue with it. So, I don't know whether you saw, but there was an embarrassing situation where, you know, there was an auction in London and some guy went and protested at this auction. It was just, and, you know, what to do, what to say. The, the, the common person who doesn't know about this kind of realm will think, well done, well done, you, you've gone and raised awareness. You know, but it's, it's just a complete facade. It's, it's a bit of a joke. I'll tell you why. Because... This particular protest that happened, I remember seeing it. I actually watched it online. It was uh, There was a quiver, a seat quiver that was being sold in an auction. This protest happens, and it's highly embarrassing because this guy says, that's our stolen heritage. You've stolen it from us. Give it back to us, All right? Okay, let's do, just pause for a second there. Firstly, I want to know who stole it. That, that object in particular, who stole that object? Okay, and where did they steal it from? Turns out, turns out, if this chap had done any research whatsoever, it turns out that the quiver that was being sold was actually being sold by a Sikh for a start. It wasn't being sold by the white man, the English man who sold it. The auctions are the agent for a Sikh who's selling it. Secondly, it was a gift back in the day from the Sikh Sardars to an Englishman, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Right? I'm sorry, this is just hilarious. Like, it's yeah, just it so good.
1: Yeah, yeah. Because people won't know this. You know, Will instead, you know, Singh feels happy about himself, goes on and goes into his next protest because he thinks he's done something wonderful. Actually, you know, those of us in the know will think, what the hell? Because it's a Sikh who's selling it. It wasn't stolen in the first place. And then after that, it was a Sikh who bought it from that sale right? A Sikh who then thought, actually, I'm just going to buy that. No one, no good lawyer came in and stepped in to buy that, right? There wasn't any follow-up. I'm sure he didn't follow up with that institution with the auctioneer to say, can I, can I please uh, secure this in a private sale because I'm so worried about where it's going to go. No one for the next stage is then worried about where this art's going to go. Okay, so actually at the moment, it's down to private collectors. We hope that they're going to research and share with everybody, make it accessible. Right. So there's a, a feeling of collective ownership. No one's stopping the good worry. Let them do it. Go for it. You know, I, I'd encourage them. Um, so, yeah, I, I, did that answer your question?
0: No, that answered my question brilliantly. I think you've answered that. Again, one thing that I really appreciate is just the honesty that you brought from start to end. Like, I really appreciate it. First of all, um, it might not necessarily seem like a lot to you, but I think to some people listening, I think they'll they'll be able to almost sense the, the, the like the, the honesty in it all. Um, and I think, yeah, I think you're, you, you've you hit it on the mark because actually without, do it's almost like um, just creating a straw man and being like, look, look at this terrible threat that we have. And then you just happen to be the person who then deals with the, with, with the so-called issue. And actually it's not as black and white as you've been saying. It's not as, as black and white as perhaps you may think it is. And actually when you dig a little bit deeper, we find out, well, hold on that's not the truth I also find it completely hilarious because as you went on the facts were just were just so so damning so sold by a Sikh, bought by a Sikh um and then on top of it it wasn't even stolen in the first place it was a, a present
1: yeah it's just it's just it's it's too easy it's a very easy narrative to push okay and, and I'm not saying that some things weren't stolen you know let me make that clear you know I'm not saying that uh, the Leapsing wasn't um swindled out of what was what he was due to kind of receive. I'm you know, I'm not saying that, you know, we didn't um, you know, there weren't issues off during the Anglo-Sikh wars or whatever. What I'm saying is is that we need generally in whatever you do, you know, the approach is if they, let's highlight what the problem is, let's find out what the solution is, let's get on with finding a solution. We've got to be pragmatic about it. Do we care enough or not? If we don't, then we don't need to just carry on making noise about our stuff. We actually need to do something about something. And with regards to the preservation of material heritage, you know, and I'm not saying it's not in everybody's blood to become a collector. Right? It's, it's, it's difficult. It's costly. There's risks attached to it. Um, and so I'm not saying that to people. We're not, oh, I'm not saying that everyone needs to do that. But what I'm saying is that we need to really think about in a very sensible way as to what is the problem that we're trying to solve? How do we then solve that problem if we're really truly worried about that problem? Or do I just need to be seen to be worried about a problem? Do you know what I mean? And that's, and that's where that is. You know, I know, and I'm not the only Seat collector out there. You know, I'm not here saying that, you know, this is it. This is the only place Seat art exists. There are a number of Seat collectors out there. I, and I, I know them and I know that they're doing valuable work and, you know, but there are people out there or institutions out there with far more wealth than, than the collectors that I know or people like myself, Right. So if they they were truly interested, people like me wouldn't have a look look looking, we wouldn't have a chance, but the interest isn't there. And that's, that's just the fact of it.
0: I also think a lot of it is actually just in response. So what I mean by that is I think a lot of it is just because for argument's sake, people like yourself are actually doing something. Everyone's like, what someone else has done something before like I could do it for argument's sake or, or whatever the case might be and I think it's like oh I need to now be seen like I'm I'm also doing something whereas I I, I I would I guess to paraphrase it I think a lot of the noise that is made is just hollow and actually everyone else who's doing something about it is being disturbed by that that slight. Like, Interference. Um. And no, I, I, I think that's that's absolutely fair. I'm going to keep the rest of the questions for next time because they're all in relation to like particular items, etc. And I think that would work well as like a bit on its own. I've genuinely, really, really enjoyed the conversation. The last couple of hours have like completely thrown by. I just wanted to double check: is there anything in particular that you just wanted to to comment on or, or to include or anything like that?
1: No, no, no I think that's good. I think I think we've had a natural uh, flow, and um, I, I'm yeah, I'm grateful. Thanks a lot
0: yeah genuinely like thank you so much
1: no worries i appreciate it and uh, likewise i appreciate the sincerity and all the hard work that you're putting in
0: you've now reached the end of episode 11 of the sort podcast with this episode's guest davinda Sintur. if you want to support the podcast check out our patreon page otherwise make sure to subscribe to our channel on youtube